Hey everyone, welcome to The Fan Lab, a limited series podcast that dives deep into the heartbeat of contemporary culture and commerce. I'm your host, Jonathan Hansen, the Chief Creative Officer of Unconquered, a creative agency unlocking the emotional power of fandom for brands. We created this podcast as an extension to a report we recently published called Decoding Fandom that's available on our website at weareunconquered.co or linked in the show notes. From the world of music and entertainment to the realm of business valuations and technology, fandom has become one of the most powerful forces in brand building over the past few years. We've seen it transform brands through our work in sports, athletic apparel, and footwear, and we can see it across culture, showing up in people lining up for monster energy tattoos to influencer-led brands like Prime Energy. Being a fan can be a profound connection that sparks a need to belong to something larger than ourselves while also giving us a chance to embrace our own unique individuality. In this series, we talk with experts in contemporary culture and fandoms, exploring from every angle. We hope to shed light on how brands can work within fandom as a marketing tool through insightful discussions on how brands can create lifelong connections with their audience. In our latest episode, we take a look at the growth of Glossier with Elizabeth Afuso, who's a professor of media studies with a focus on fashion and beauty cultures, as well as the shifting dynamics of celebrity and influencer economies. She published a case study, Into the Flow, examining how Glossier leveraged fandom. If you're not familiar with the brand, it's a beauty brand that's gone from blog to D2C to being stocked in national retailers. Through a series of pivotal moments, strategic branding, and influencer partnerships, Glossier has successfully built a dedicated fandom around its products. Join us as we explore the key factors that contributed to Glossier's rise to success and examine how they harness the power of fandom to build their brand. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. So I had a chance to speak with Avi. Um, he, he really recommended you as far as being a great resource to speak with. Um, I know you've done some some research in the past together, both work in academia. I would love to get a little background on how you, how you two met and um, and how this sort of has helped, I think, your focus in within the world of fandom. Sure. Um, Avi and I, I don't know quite when Avi and I met, but we met certainly at a conference um, mm-hmm. probably about 10 years ago now. Um, and, you know, at that time, I would say my work was pivoting into the fandom kind of sector. Um, I had always been interested in fashion and beauty cultures, um, in in branding. Um, I'd done some work on reality TV, Um specifically on the hills, which I think we'll probably talk mm-hmm, about later mm-hmm. in, in this episode. Um, and I'd been interested in the ways that uh, the new celebrity economies were um, the influencer economy, the reality TV economy were, you know, kind of shifting celebrity and shifting its relationship to, to products, um, mm-hmm. to merchandise. And I was specifically interested myself in the fashion and beauty sectors. Mm-hmm. Um and Avi and I were both interested, I think, in the way that fandom was being embraced by industry, both by like the media industry, but also by um, the fashion and beauty industries, um, various other sectors of commerce, um, and the ways that branding and fandom were kind of intersecting um, into mm-hmm. these sort of brandoms, which I think Glossier is an example of a brand, and then we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were also interested in the ways that fan studies, which is this like subfield of media studies, had historically been kind of uninterested in um, 
or maybe not uninterested is maybe not the right word, but less interested um, mm-hmm. in uh, branded product than in things that were fan-made, right? Um, there was this um, conception in the field that there was maybe more authenticity attached to, to products that were fan-made, like fan videos or fan art or fan fiction. Um, and there was you know, interest in collecting of branded items like comic books or action figures mm-hmm. or things like that. But um, there was sort of less interest in the commodity product that was being made by corporations to sell to fans. Um, and we were really interested in kind of diving into that sector and thinking about um, what the implications there were, um, both for fans, but also for for merchandising writ mm-hmm. large and, and what it might say about our kind of contemporary moment in like late capitalism, for example, um, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. this sort of very consumer centric and consumer driven moment that we list that we live in, that is very global. Um, and that's really how we came together. And we started working together on this um, special issue, journal issue on um, films and merchandise, which came out in 2018. Um, and now we're working on a new project that's on kind of fan lifestyles and how this idea of lifestyle is being kind of leveraged into the fan space. And lifestyle is a sort of fuzzy term, I think, in mm-hmm. the contemporary economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really thinking about um, trying to define what that might look like um, within the fans, the fans base. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in 2018, um, referencing that piece you wrote on Glossier, Into the Glow, Glossier's Emily Weiss and Millennial Entrepreneurism, um, I think, I, you know, you sent that over and I read it before uh, we, we started chatting today. And, you know, I, I thought it was a great piece. And I, and I think it does a great job of really bundling up everything we've already been you've already been talking about as far as like entertainment mm-hmm. properties, celebrityism, um, and then mm-hmm. you have the whole beauty and and fashion influencers. And what I, I always find the the beauty in, in fashion influencer space really interesting when you compare it to like sports and athletics or entertainment properties. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah. a whole there's a I, there is something distinctly different, but I still at, I'm still at this point in in my understanding and and, and depth of it and, and study. It's still hard to like pinpoint and clearly define, um, which I think is really, for me anyway. And and I'm really curious, mm-hmm. you know, as you were thinking about this brand and and all these things at the same time, like what it was specifically that pulled you in and inspired you to write about this um, in depth as you did, and and really start breaking it down and looking at maybe either cause and effect or this is how it worked in a brand strategy mm-hmm. perspective. Um, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I I came to the brand to, to Glossier via Into the Gloss, which was this blog that Emily Weiss started in mm-hmm. 2010. Um, that was sort of massively influential beauty blog, um, and I think a lot of people who came to Glossier at the point of its launch in 2014 came to it via that that mm-hmm. that sort of trajectory, right? It was this mm-hmm. natural extension. The brand, in fact, was like launched initially. It launched and announced on the web, on the blog, and then linked over to the sort of new Glossier page. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was this, you know, it was certainly um, the indication was certainly that the initial fan base would be people who were already embroiled in the brand and who you know were familiar with its content. Um, I think that's not true anymore. I mean, certainly, like when I go to the Sephora. Uh, gondola, as they call them in Sephora for mm-hmm. Glossier, there's a lot of you know preteens buying Glossier products who were not reading the blog in 2010. I mean, because they were 
like small children. Um, <laughs> so it's definitely expanded its uh, its landscape quite considerably. Um, and I was, I mean, I think my initial interest in into the gloss specifically came from uh, a larger interest in what was happening in beauty culture on the internet mm-hmm. uh, across a bunch of different spaces, notably YouTube and the blogosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was quite interested in how, um, you know, beauty kind of makeover culture um, was exploding in these in these spaces. And I was interested in it for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I was interested in the ways that it seemed to be uh, more inclusive than beauty magazines had been in the past. So there were a lot of influencers coming up in the space who were um, more sort of body diverse than we'd seen previously. Um, and I was interested in the fact that that was happening, but also that makeup was still being shilled, right? So it wasn't like we were rejecting the makeup and beauty industries. We were embracing them, but thinking about them more expansively, um, which is a kind of key argument of a lot of uh, you know, post-feminist discourse and, and literature. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I quote Marcellus Kearney in that piece on uh, the referencing on that. Um, and I was also interested in the intimacy of of these of initially the videos and then also the top shelf routines that became the sort of centerpiece of Into the Gloss. So the top shelf was this column where um, they would interview somebody about um, their beauty routine. And it was a really sort of candid narrative. So instead of, you know, these these weren't unusual in beauty magazines like Allure or Vogue or Elle or things like that, but they were um much more sort of edited in those contexts. These were these sort of like blogosphere style, like long Long. form pieces where people would, um, you know, describe in great detail the sort of bizarre ways that they, you know, put on their product or their, Mm -hmm. their nighttime routine. Like I remember there was one with Liv Tyler where she said she like put perfume in her belly button and that tip (laughs) sort of went viral. Um, And it didn't really seem like the kind of thing that would, you know, like, come, you know, exist in a different space and had this sort of Uh intimacy about it. And it had this um, sort of like quotidian quality um, that made these very compelling. And then there was, of course, because it was a blog, there were these massive comments that would exist at the hundreds of comments on these pieces where people would endorse a product that somebody was using, or they would, you know, talk about something that they'd said about their routine. and it had this real community space aspect to it, which was also mm-hmm. true for a lot of the YouTube bloggers as well. Um, and so I became interested in how um, the internet was sort of embracing beauty culture. Mm-hmm. And this was simultaneous with something else that was happening that was really important, which was that, you know, the iPhone comes out in 2007, social media really starts to explode, you know, visual social media like Instagram starts to explode, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of after, just after Into the Gloss gets founded in 2010. Um, And suddenly we have all these more, you know, additional opportunities to be photographed than we had previously, Mm -hmm. um, which puts a lot more pressure on the sort of beautification of self. And one of the things that Into the Gloss was shilling and that ultimately Glossier was shilling in their first four products 
was this idea that you wanted your skin to be beautiful, that you wanted to have the sort of natural, glowy glow, of course, was like the big idea mm. of Glossier. Um, and it was one that was also very prevalent on the on the internet and the sort of YouTube spaces as well. Um, and that you wanted, you know, to look sort of natural and um, you wanted to be you. This is Glossier's like big, big buzz sort of term mm-hmm. is like you. Um, and this you know, this felt like a kind of shift point in what the makeup industry had been selling. So it's sort of simultaneously sort of rise of skincare product, which uh, comes as part of, um, you know, so partially as part of the Korean wave with Korean 10 steps, 10 steps skincare routines. Um, and then, you know, comes in with this sort of focus on serums and skin perfecting products. And when Glossier launches in 2014, they do it with four products. Um, one is like a lip balm, balm.com. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> some, some is flavored, some is a little tinted, depending which one you buy. Um, a perfecting skin tint, which was a, kind of like a tinted skin product. It's actually quite gender neutral. So that was the sort of interesting element of it. Mm-hmm. Um, a priming moisturizer. And then um, a facial mist, a sort of toning facial mist product. It's actually, that's the only product of the original four that's now discontinued. Um but it was a very streamlined launch and it was a kind of capsule of four products that, you know, you could use and your skin would look great and you would look a little bit glowy and you would look fabulous. And, you know, these like new Instagram pictures mm-hmm. that could be taken at all times. And it felt quite innovative. And that was really what I was interested in initially. Um, and then sort of diving back to the fandom elements, I was interested in the way that the brand leveraged fandom um not just fandom of the influencers or the celebrities who are being featured on the blog or of emily weiss herself but of the brand mm-hmm. um so you know it had this sort of very chic millennial pink branding um, very minimal yeah exactly it's it's, it's yeah, like very a, minimal. it's like the... calls it rose boards yeah, it's like the cutout yeah, for like D2C branding, I would say, at least in the beginning. I know they were kind of a, mm-hmm. earlier in the in the in the whole D2C um you know market boom. So I they definitely I think helped probably influence that trend, but they were definitely one of the first to to to, to really latch on to like that minimalist label um and look. Mm-hmm. Super minimalist label. And um, you know, they um, when they would send you, I think there's a picture of the box and and the article that I yes, sent you. But they, you know, when you would when you would get an item from them, it would come in this sort of beautiful box. You'd open it up, and it had this sort of messaging inside the lid. And then you got this um, pink bubble wrap pouch, zippable pouch that was yep. reusable. And the products were inside of it. So rather than being in, you know, like just thrown in the box, it had this presentation. Mm-hmm. And initially, they gave out phone stickers in a uh like a slip of stickers hmm. um and now they give out a bigger sticker and it's seasonal um that would go on like a water bottle or a laptop you know thinking uh-huh. about the evolution of the sticker economy as well but you know again uh-huh. this opportunity for the for the audience to actually do advertising and do branding for you by branding you know their devices or their um objects um and at that same time when they launched the brand they did these this pop-up in new york um, and I went to the pop-up on Lafayette street, so like down the street from the mm-hmm. Supreme store, right. Right. in kind of streetwear central. Mm-hmm. And 
there was like a queue of people, you know, around the block trying to get in. And it felt like it had this similarity to what the streetwear brands were sort of doing, right? Where it was like, you're dropping products and Mm -hmm. everyone's going to queue up for it. And it's going to be this social, um, this kind of social moment. Um, And then the stores were highly, highly Instagrammable in a way Mm -hmm. that um, stores were kind of not yet. I mean, I think they are now, but at that time, um, they weren't, they have these famous for these mirrors. They're also in the Sephora end caps that are, um, round and say you look good on them so when you photograph yourself mm-hmm. in the mirror it says you look good right mm-hmm. and then that was like you know you see all over social media pictures of people um in the store you know mm-hmm. sh- showing images of themselves in the mirror it had this it had this real sense um it was clear from the beginning that they had a real sense of the sort of cir- like the circuitry of um you know, the brand as a digital first, you know, direct e-commerce brand um, and the ways in which they could leverage that um, toward content creation, both from people they were in a relationship with like more professional influencers, but also just from regular kind of consumers, or in this case, I might call them fans. Mm -hmm. Totally. And And I'm curious to like, if you think, when you think back on it, you know, what were some of those like pivotal big fan-centric moments you know you talk one about you know their their early feature on the hills um Mm -hmm. and you know i'm curious to i'm always curious about when you think about like a business or a brand's story and trajectory like what are those pivotal moments that help like really uh, throw them into the stratosphere and I, i wonder if that's one of those moments when you get an endorsement like that from from people who have a really hot TV show on MTV and are speaking exactly to your specific audience. I, I mean, that's, that's yeah. like prime time opportunity. Um, what are your thoughts there? So that, I mean, that's an interesting kind of thing. So she, so what, Emily Weiss appeared on a three up ep, like three episodes of The Hills in two thousand seven mm-hmm. um, as sort of the um, so she's the founder of Into the Glass and Glossier and. She at that time was a college student at NYU and she mm-hmm. was a, the Vogue's New York intern. And she like mm-hmm. comes out to LA and she's like the intern extraordinaire, right? This is like the beginning um, of a movie. I feel like this is like, like the beginning of a She's so good at her job. Two. Yeah. Yeah. She's so good at her job. This is like the first act of the story, right? So she's like so good at her job. She looks so pulled together. Nobody can even believe she's like a college student. Um, and she, you know, she's there as a kind of rival for Lauren Conrad's, um, you know, and Whitney Port's L.A. interns who are, like, mm-hmm. less pulled together, less good at their job, less effortlessly mm-hmm. chic. Um, so she, they sort of rivalry exists. At this point, she doesn't have any other, you know, existing brand presence, right? This is three years before Into the Gloss. This is, what, okay. seven years before Glossier. Um, but she makes an impression, and the show is hugely successful, right? Like The Hills is a really, really big show, mm-hmm. particularly with the people who would ultimately become kind of the Glossier court audience, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, and I think actually what's interesting when you go back and watch those episodes as I have, you know, subsequent to this, to the launch of Glossier, for example, is she really has the brand identity down already. I mean, mm-hmm. she looks, she has a much sort of cleaner, um, like less made up look than the la girls she she has that sort of effortless you quality that glossier really kind of goes for um 
And I mean, there's always been this rumor that she was offered a bigger part on the city, the spinoff of the Hills that was set in New York um, and turned it down because she thought reality TV was like not where she wanted her brand to go. Hmm. Um, it's, I mean, I've never been able to confirm that one way or the other, mm-hmm. but that's always been sort of this background story. Um, MTV will never confirm anything, so you'll never mm-hmm. get an answer out of them. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, she goes to work at Vogue. So she she's like, the, if you think about this, she's the successful intern, right? She's the one who gets gets the job. And as you might have expected from this reality TV trajectory. Um, and then, you know, I think Into the Gloss is the sort of the launch of that is a big, obviously a big moment. Um, Into the Gloss also kind of importantly starts moving off of the blogosphere specifically and into the YouTube space. So they start doing um, get ready with me videos, which are really popular on YouTube. Um, And they do them with a host of different kind of influencers um, and also just the regular people like college students or, you Mm -hmm. know, just sort of really kind of thinking broadly about the brands. Um, I think this is actually pretty significant because, you know, most of the big brands like Vogue does tons of these get ready with me videos now they were kind of early to this trend of brands doing them. So of, of thinking about, you know, what are, what are people doing on the internet that we can kind of leverage into something Mm -hmm. that could be branded content, but also be searchable as a get ready with me, for example, and YouTube Mm -hmm. for somebody would be looking for that kind of content or following that content. Um, You know, of course in 2014, you have the launch, I think in terms of, of, of moments where I see some pretty significant impacts in terms of, um, influencer partnerships. I think they do a partnership with Paloma, the uh, model, um, around mm-hmm. 2017. She does a Get Ready With Me video that's really good. Um, and then she does um, the campaign for Body Hero, which is the sort of um, body oil moisturizing product that they do, which is one of, uh, one of the sort of bigger, more attention-grabbing media campaigns that they mm-hmm. do. Um, it has some relationship to Dove's Real Beauty campaign in the sense that it's like... Um, you know, sort of naked women of lots of different body types. Mm -hmm. Um, They do um, billboards where the body hero is done in the Supreme logo kind of over, you know, breasts, basically. Um, And it's, you know, they put it up on billboards all around New York City and Los Angeles. But I mean, that feels like a big moment where they're kind of, um, Paloma is now more famous than she was at that time. She was kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, rising in her status. um, And, that that felt like a, a moment where they were kind of thinking very broadly about, you know, um, what to do with an influence, you know, a kind of someone who was kind of on the cusp of like influencer and more conventional uh, kind of fame. Um, and I think she felt like a important partnership for them in the sense that they were trying to go for, they were really trying to position themselves in the kind of like inclusive body positive space. And that was mm-hmm. a good partnership for them in terms of trying to capture brand ethos. Mm -hmm. Um, The Body Hero campaign has remained kind of an interesting one for them. Um, So in 2022, they partnered with the WNBA. So the WNBA is now the partner on the Body Hero brand. um, And they do get ready with me videos with like WNBA players. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's, it again maintains this sort of sense of thinking um, very broadly within that, that particular product. Um, you know, 
they have started doing, I think, more really more conventional brand partnerships in recent years. So in 2022, they did a capsule collection with Olivia Rodrigo, who's like their first mm-hmm. true sort of brand ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like this lavender makeup bag with a lavender compact. So actually a move away from the pink, right, to mm-hmm. the sort of lavender, still in the pastel register. We're not going mm-hmm. too far, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, a slightly different uh, kind of brand's aesthetic. And I think Rodrigo is also an interesting partner for them, you know, in terms of thinking about a brand built on the internet, Um because obviously, like driver's license is one of the you know more important sort of viral songs of the TikTok boom, right? Um, this way that you know she also has been able to leverage um, sort of social media as part of building her personal brand, um, which I think is a big part of what Flossia does. Um, well, one think, thing you know, also, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you, you mentioned TikTok, no, and, I, and, I, and I think it's yeah. an interesting opportunity to talk about platforms and, and using platforms yeah. to help cultivate. Uh, fans and and tap into maybe existing fandoms even um but when we're talking about you know the beginnings and origins of the, of glossier it was a it was stemming from a blog format a blog audience i mean that mm-hmm. is very much of that era um i think yeah. you know i we've all we're big readers of blogs now they're just so full of advertising it's impossible to get th- through them um mm-hmm. and they seem like such a great place because you can have long threads uh, of of information um, that gets very detailed versus like a TikTok or Instagram reel where it's you know a few you know thirty seconds or whatever it is. Um, so there's quite quite a difference in what you can how and what you can use. Um, but you know there's another brand out there called uh, Monday Swimwear that I've been following. They started out as a somewhere a mm-hmm. swimwear blog that has now leveraged stuff into a, a pretty big swimwear brand, and I, they have a similar I think pathway in, in some ways to Glossier. There's some overlap there. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm I'm curious when we think about platforms, you know, where do you see that going? And you know, it, I, I know it's hard to like predict the future, and I'm almost asking you to predict the future here. Um, but you know, as blogs are becoming less of like a mainstay and we're going for like shorter bits of content, I'm I'm curious to, you know, where you think those opportunities are to like really tap into something and, and build a brand off of because you, know, you hear about you hear about brands building or at least uh, getting a big lift from TikTok, but I w- I wouldn't I don't know how you know much of a relationship you can build with 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 your customers and something like that. And as you were pointing out, the, the comment section is such a huge part of the community inside of a, a blog, um, which doesn't necessarily always translate over to social. Some platforms it does, others it does not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what are, your, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I think we are in a really interesting kind of transitional moment. Um, you know, I think if you look at something like Glossier or, you know, Monday Swimwear, right, they're, they came up in a moment where you could... Where I mean, the market was less oversaturated than it is now, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Glossy was doing something like a hundred million. I mean, so into the gloss was doing something like a hundred million unique page views a month at one point. It's incredible. Um, you know, the that that's just impossible now. I just don't think there's any way for somebody, you know, we're in a different internet moment. It's just mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not possible to leverage uh audience in that in that manner. Um in fact, I've seen a lot of bloggers in this sort of OG bloggers in the fashion space have sort of quit blogging in the last couple of years, right? Because it's just become kind of impossible to to monetize and and to kind of hold audience in the way that mm-hmm. that they used to. 
Um, and I, I do think that the issues that you just described with TikTok are very real. I mean, uh, you have to contend with the algorithm, which means like at some level it's easier to go viral, but it's much harder to maintain audience because you're sort of fighting the algorithm. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you're talking about very short form media, which is, you know, again, it's more difficult for people to emotionally resonate with mm-hmm. short form media. I think um, it's harder to build that relationship. Um, and I also think, um, that, you know, part of the pleasure I think of for people of TikTok is that it's sort of so quick. And so there's so much and, you, know, and you, don't just, decision, you don't have to make a decision. It's just kind of like on autopilot. Decisions, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not like, you know, deciding to go to this place and spend a lot of time there. That's not the pleasure of, of, of that. Um, and certainly I do think you're, you're correct. I mean, brands certainly have viral moments with TikTok or they're able to build audience or, um, you know, but how, how can you maintain audience? I think is a real question, real question there. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm not sure what the next thing is. I have to tell you, like my students, you know, where I feel like always on, you know, ready for the next thing, know what the next thing is, you know, their favorite new thing is be real, mm-hmm. which, I don't really see how you're going to um, leverage into. I, I don't. I don't really see how brands are going to be able to leverage be real into something at this moment. But I, that you know, I may be very wrong on that, and mm-hmm. you know, will be laughing at me in two years. Um, um, What's the age group of your, seem, are your of your students? I wonder how that plays in. They're like eighteen to twenty-two, um, okay. and they seem to really i mean just in terms of thinking about what they seem to be like into right now in terms of what social media can do Uh they're very ad skeptical um they like tiktok because once they spend the time kind of cooking their algorithm they're able to get kind of exactly what they want Mm -hmm. or a lot of what they want right Mm -hmm. so they're being fed um content that is you know they feel is really designed for them. But of course it's quite narrow casted, right? Like, you know, it's not like they're all, they're not watching the same things, right? They're watching this very specific thing, which I think is also hard for brands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they do seem to like these platforms that have like be real has this very specific temporality about it, right? You get your daily notification, you take your picture, you're done. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Um, it, it has a very like economical labor about it. Um, in some days, it, in some ways it feels a little bit sort of, you know, like a slow internet kind of object, <laughs> right. Where you're just, you know, instead of sort of overthinking the aesthetic, um, you're just doing, um, you know, whatever, whatever. I kind of love that simplicity that though. <clears throat> I can yeah. appreciate that. I no, I, to- I absolutely can. Yeah. But, I guess I wonder like that pushback seems like it's a challenge for brands, right? Because if what people are looking for, then is something that's a little bit slower or a little bit more just your friends or something. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. That's going to be, that's a hard place to leverage. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that like um, the, you know, there does seem to be a great deal of pushback about how much advertising there is on Instagram specifically. Um, And I think that that, you know, obviously I understand why Instagram, uh, the company has done that, but I do think it's probably not helping the influencer space in the sense that I think people are frustrated. They can't find 
um, they can't even see the things that they want to be following. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about that, you know, they don't see what they want to see on that platform. Um, I guess in some ways a push towards a more slow internet might be, you know, maybe, maybe it'll revert back to like a blogosphere style. thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm for, I, I enjoy it. I, maybe that's just, that was like when I got really focused and into the internet. So maybe it's, it's more nostalgic for me. Yeah. Um, but what I think is, but what I, I think is, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go, ahead, what, go ahead. What I, what I think is interesting is um, how this, so the, into the gloss really help, I think, hone in product development for the brand by, mm-hmm. by, by focusing in on like, and, and learning where those key, like fan driven products were or like, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. because they're just aspirational and they're just at a high cost point or because they really do work. Um, you know, they, she was able to get a, like a lot of information out to, 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 to fuel her own product development. And you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that um, and in this piece. And what I find interesting is that she did it in a way that um, she wasn't making like knockoffs. She maintained the mm-hmm. brand integrity while providing an alternative. Um mm-hmm. I would love you to, to talk a little bit about that with, I feel like I'm not doing a very good job of, of digging into it there. Sure. I'm happy to talk about that. I think I think it's one of the things that she did really, really well um, that, that Emily Weiss did really well and her team. Um, I mean, they had of course like four years of into the gloss to, you know, comments mm-hmm. and, you know, um, data about, you know, which, which, which articles mm-hmm. were being clicked on the most, which products were being clicked on. Right. To, um, to go through and to really imagine, you know, what, what, you know, basically do market research of yeah. their audience and, and imagine what the audience wanted. Um, and, and the piece that you're referencing, I talk um, a bit about um, a product that had a real cult appeal that was being pushed in part by into the gloss and the top shelf. So mm-hmm. um, over and over again in these top shelf pieces, which were, I will, I will say a lot of the top shelves um, as compared to maybe something you might see on YouTube, um, the top shelves were often being done by people who were fairly um, affluent, right? So they were people who worked in the beauty and fashion spaces or celebrities um, in a lot of cases or it girls, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, who had access to products that maybe regular folks like didn't and couldn't afford, which was part of the pleasure, of course, of the site um, was that sort of aspirational element. Mm -hmm. But they um this one product kept coming up over and over again this uh biology recherche p50 which is a uh like a acid serum mm-hmm. and at the time it was only available at like one retailer in america but it just kept coming up as like the thing that you needed to you know fix your mm-hmm. face problems mm-hmm. um, it was gonna solve it and it was expensive it was like it, it was out of the price point of for the average person i would say mm-hmm. um I think at that time, at, at this at that point, it retailed for about seventy dollars a bottle, um, and you know, but it, it one of the things that started to happen on into the gloss was that cults started to occur around particular types of products. So these exfoliating toner products, like P fifty um, serums that were hyaluronic acid or glycolic acid. Um, or uh, lactic acid, all of which are now very popular within the beauty marketplace, but at that time were fairly kind of new to the average consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and serums that had these products in them were also fairly pricey. Um, 
there has been some innovation in that marketplace. Like it's a company like The Ordinary, I think is a really important uh, company in terms of thinking about making uh, like serums accessible to large large numbers of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, their price point is very low. It's like $6 a serum. I mean, oh, wow. Right. Um, yeah. But, um, and they're like in Target. Um, but you, um, so she, you know, there was these sort of cults around these products. So one of the things that she did um, with the with the brand was to develop versions of these products that had these sort of cult appeals. Um, so they did a kind of exfoliating toner uh, called the Solution. Um, the hyaluronic acid serum is called Bounce. Um, you know, so they branded them in these you know, sort mm-hmm. of fun ways. Um, and I think price them price them low. Like I think I just bought a bounce serum a few weeks ago. I think it was like $27 or something. You know, I mean, not cheap, but not like insanely expensive mm-hmm. either. Right. Um, and, but when she did, so we might call these like dupe style products to some extent, right? Like products mm-hmm. that are versions of something, something else that is more, more higher end. Um, but what Glossy did was they made these products seem like luxury items. Um, so the price point might be accessible, particularly to this young audience they were chasing, you know, people in their teens or their twenties who probably didn't have tons of disposable income to spend on, Mm -hmm. um, you know, expensive skincare products, but wanted them, but they made them seem covetable, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, if you, you know, the products, as I said, you know, when you got the package in the mail, it felt really fun and fancy, when you go into a Glossier store and they now have a lot of re- brick and mortar retail locations and major cities in the U S you know, there are these sort of um, incredibly sort of minimalist pink and red and aqua um, stores with beautiful mirrors and these like minimalist counters. And I think the minimalism is important because minimalism is kind of it as a retail aesthetic is associated with more high-end brands. Um, you know, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, mm-hmm. as you move down in the cost sector, you typically get more clutter I'm sorry, in the shelf. So, you know, the kind of minimalist presentation, mm-hmm. um, a lot of, um, staff in the store. So again, that feeling that you're being, you know, kind of talked to and, you know, um, and I think that, really was the branding of the product, the aesthetic of it was really important to maintaining that sense of like, this is a luxurious item. This is a, um, this is special. Um, this is chic. It's hip, you know, and hip, I think was a big part of it, right. That it was hip. Um, and this is not unusual in the beauty space. Um, you know, most luxury brands, Gucci, Chanel, Dior make a lot of their money, in the perfume and beauty sectors by selling the sort of idea of luxury in a cheaper package through mm-hmm. these products. You know, they're moving a lot more perfume than they are, um, you know, handbags, which are at a much higher price point. Um, but they're able to do that by maintaining the sheen of luxury, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what, what Glossier was able to do. You know, you were going to Glossier because you wanted to go to Glossier, not because you had to go to Glossier. I think that's kind of an important distinction. Yes, yeah, I was going to ask you too if you have actually purchased and used Glossier. You already answered it. It sounds like it sounds like you, you I have, bought in. I have. Yeah, and I bought in. Yeah, 
Um, I like Bounce. The, I mean, I feel like an ad. I like the Hyaluronic Acid Serum. <laughs> I think it's a nice serum. It's, it works really well for the price point. Um, I like the Perfecting Skin Tint. Um, I will confess that I've actually like bought more products recently from uh, Violette, who is somebody that was kind of an early uh, like uh-huh. feature on Into the Gloss, who now has a line. Oh, interesting. Um, sorry, this kind of like, you know, glossier sort of diaspora, if you will. Uh-huh. Well, um, and what drew you to th- what drew you to that? Was it was the the influencer? Did it their their endorsement yeah, help your decision making? So she has a she has a line of products, um, and she ha- she made you she's made YouTube's for years that are very popular and has a popular Instagram. I always liked her YouTube's. I thought they were kind of very fun. I mean, mm-hmm. she's kind of trying to distill like French girl beauty into a brand. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I would say like Glossier products. There are some products that are like hyper pigmented in the Glossier line, but not that many because it has that sort of natural beauty aesthetic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Violette has um, a lot of products that are like hyper pigmented. So she's like bright red lipstick. Um mm-hmm that has been very popular, um, you know, across the beauty space in, in the last couple of years. Um, and I think, you know, it depends on, I think your kind of interest in, you know, what kind of makeup you want. I mean, that's, you know, has some skincare products is a little bit, uh, smaller line than, than Glossier's is at this point. Um, but I think in general, both of them, I think both of those lines actually speak to something that is interesting, which is, I think like, I think with it, I think there's a lot of potential still in the beauty sector for, um, you know, direct to consumer brands that come from kind of influencer models. Um, because I think beauty is quite intimate. I think younger consumers are not going to walk into like a Macy's and walk around the cosmetics counter and, you know, talk to the sales people. It's just not how they want to shop. It's, uh, not how they're accustomed to living their life even. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, you know, Sephora is always packed and people seem to enjoy the play sort of possibilities of walking around Sephora and trying things on, but Sephora has a floor space problem and, you know, most of their brands aren't even on the floor. It's actually very hard to get a brand on the floor at Sephora, which I mean, speaks to Glossier's positionality if they were able to get one in 2022. Yeah. Um, or 2023. just launched this year um and they you know i think um the endorsement of somebody that people trust in this space is kind of important right i mean people that's where i was going to go with the trust right because you walk around on macy's Mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if you would necessarily just immediately you have to build that relationship with your salesperson to to, before you Mm -hmm. can you know take a recommendation from them or in a very superficial way how do they look does their Skin look good deserve makeup mm-hmm. look good you're going to be judging right. i think trying to like find a proof point to like okay they know what they're talking about um where you know if you're seeing these people on your screen every day every time you open it um a lot of the groundwork's already been done for you and what i, what I find about interest i've been in the sephora i've been in the ultra or ulta i've been I, ulta, ulta, yeah yeah yeah, they, they, yeah I've, been, I've been in these stores and um I think one of the challenges also of these of having like a retail operations having the just the EQ levels of a sales associate associate mm-hmm. being able to like walk you through put things on your face as you said it's a very intimate experience 
um, and something that might be a little awkward and uncomfortable for most people. If you don't have like that Mm -hmm. salesperson who really can read body language, knows how to like Mm -hmm. loosen people up, get them to feel comfortable. Um, There's a big, there's a big brand challenge there for getting around that. Um, So I, so I, I can see where the influencer side of it makes sense, especially from a, from a, leading into their own brand i mean we're seeing it now it's 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 something i think we haven't necessarily we've seen it in the four like celebrity yoga brands or whatever but now i think it's coming they had celebrityism or they were on tv or they were music stars or whatever before now we have people who are just known for being who they are on the internet owning brands and, and turning that into a brand which i think is really fascinating um in an interesting space and, and i'm curious to where you know who you're following what you th- who you think is doing a great job of that oh wow that's an interesting that's an interesting question um uh i um you know i mean i i think i think you're absolutely right i think the influencer space has this emotional register that's very different yeah. from conventional celebrity or even you know from you know salespeople in a store um and you know, people do follow influencers who they feel like are registering for them, right? Um, you know, they look like how they want to look, or they have an aesthetic that they want to emulate, and they're sort of curating via that, and that is helpful for selling products. Um, in terms of people I'm following, like I said, I like Violet a lot. Um, I love mm-hmm. Katie Storino. I don't know if you know who she is. I she has Mega but... Babe. Okay. Um, Katie Storino is um She's also kind of a body positive um, influencer and she has a line. It's in Target. It's in Ulta. It's called Mega Babe. It's okay. like um, deodorants and um, she's like bust dust. It's like like under boob powder. It's all very well branded. Um, she has like this anti-chafe stick that has a, has yes, like a I can't remember what it's called, thigh rescue. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and she's, she's like very funny um and does really good but with those topics you would have to have a sense of humor right i mean if you're going to yeah, be, and yeah. they're also kind of niche they're not necessarily like something you're going to see in back when magazines were it but you know flipping through a magazine no. you're not really going to see it in the ad for that typically right no she does these um like um underwear fit tests like for, mm-hmm. for brands where she does these like she does this she calls it a roll test where she like kind of like launches over and if the underwear rolls down that's a bad thing but you oh, would never so see that you know in any yeah other context and it's it's very funny but also very very sort of charming and, and helpful yeah. right like yeah. you know like oh if i was going to order this is this actually well it, um, it definitely hits that authenticity mark that you you, yeah, you exactly. noted earlier um and i think that's a lot of what we're talking about here as far as like trustworthiness and taking it back to like what is it why why are they trustworthy it's that authenticity of of not acting right of, of just of I mean, if you're always going to be acting and there's always going to be sort of a mask more or less when you're on social media, but uh, those who can do it in a way that's, I think, still true to who they are and what they're about and and that brand ethos um, seem to be doing really well. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think, you know, I think a lot of people think that being an influencer is maybe sort of easy, <laughs> um, yeah. but it, it isn't because I think in order to really develop your relationship with your audience you have to be like to some extent 
you have to cultivate some sort of intimacy with them. And that often is the kind of rawness or it's something that you wouldn't normally show. Um, Now, a lot of influencers kind of burn out because what happens then is that, you know, people start sort of emotionally registering back to them in ways that Mm -hmm. are often really challenging that they're ill-equipped for. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, you know, this is a really different type of celebrity than we've seen in the past. Um, It, you know, it's people who are famous for, you know, who they are themselves, which, you know, reality TV kind of breaks the barrier on that, but influencer culture really expands it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also, you know, has this sort of sense of um, a relational sense that's quite different than conventional celebrities. Like, you know, you know, I mean, I follow like Beyonce on social media, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of people respond to every one of her posts, but you know, Beyonce doesn't follow anybody, not even Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, <laughs> she doesn't respond to things people say in the comments. Like that's not part of her engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start coming down into the sort of influencer or micro celebrity sector, um, you know, you do start to see follower, you know, follower following ratios that tick up a little bit. I mean, not like the way regular people's ratios are, but, you know, you, mm-hmm. you see that they're also following people. Um, and often they're interacting, you know, in the comments or in the DMs um, with their audience, which, you know, um, you know, I follow um, some fashion influencers. Like I, I really like um, Maxi Green. And, you know, she, if somebody asks what she's wearing, she's going to respond to it in the comments, which, you know, makes, makes people feel like they are in a relationship, you know, with her in some capacity. Um, Or if she's having kind of a rough week, she's going to do a story about, you know, what's going on in her life Mm -hmm. um, in in a way that we wouldn't necessarily expect from someone in a more traditional celebrity, um, celebrity position. Mm -hmm. Well, Elizabeth, I hate to say this, but we are, we're getting close on time. Um, But I, I I enjoyed the conversation. I loved it. I thought I love this piece. Um, For people who want to search it out, where can they find that? Um, so this piece on, um, it's called Into the Glow, um, and it's on uh, flowtv.org, um, which is hosted by the University of Texas at Austin. Um, you can also just like Google my name, I think, with Glossier, and it'll come up um, pretty pretty easily um, if you if you need to. Cool. I will I also will link to it in the comments, just or in the uh, show notes for folks. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. And um, um, I would love to keep the conversation going and, and keep reading all the, the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening into the Fan Lab. We hope you've enjoyed our deep dive into the cultivating world of fandom. And as we continue to explore it, we invite you to take the next step with us. Head on over to our website and download our newest report, Decoding Fandom. It's full of insights and case studies telling the story of how fandom can create long-term value for brands. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and stay tuned to our next episode. 